0: My name is Michael Vlasto and I worked for the RNLI for 38 years, starting as lifeboat inspector and, and the last sixteen years as Operations Director. I joined the RNI in the mid-70s and back in those days. The RLI was a highly respected well-run lifeboat service, operating fairly traditional lifeboats, developing ILBs to, you know, to sort of provide infill and inshore cover, um, and working very closely with European colleagues um, and, and and doing, you know, a generally good job uh, for the Coast Guard and as, as a member of the search and rescue family. Well, in those days, one of the most sought-after jobs for people leaving either the Royal Navy or the Merchant Navy was to be a lifeboat inspector. And of course, there were only about eight of us, so it was quite well contested and took me several goes to force my way into the system. But I didn't give up on that one. Um, my background was Merchant Navy. I spent the best part of 10 years in p um, and uh, then fell in love with a purser who said, if you want to marry me, get a job ashore. So uh, I, uh, I swallowed the anchor, came ashore. Um, but if you can call working for the r a job ashore, I think it was stretching the imagination. But... I was about 10 years younger than the other inspectors and I I think I was a bit of an inverted commas experiment because I think the uh, the lords and masters at the time realized that a lot of inspectors were going to all be retiring at the same time so I was only 26 uh, and literally just the ink was still wet on my master's ticket which was the the basic requirement um, and came in and I had the important title of assistant inspector general duties which meant that the first few months I was in Pool, before headquarters was built, we were in a rented building down in the harbour. And then I was dispatched to Scotland, which was looked at as a bit of a a testing ground for young inspectors on the basis that you either made a success of it or you sort of got spat out in lumps. Fate helped me. I had one or two very difficult things to deal with very early in my time, including the double capsize, the Isla uh, and the Barra lifeboats in 1979. I then had six years in Wales and the Northwest, West. Um, uh, and then I was summoned to run operational training, which was really developing then. And that was, I really enjoyed that. It was, we had this little training center down on the old quay. And uh, uh, we started thinking about things like um, uh, the Mobile training units were in their infancy. And competence-based training was a dream on the horizon. But we really worked and and developed that uh, against the odds in some respects. There was a lot of resistance because, you know, lifeboat men and women are pretty uh, wise when anyone's trying to introduce something. And and those that didn't know what they felt they ought to know thought, you know, we're going to get tripped up here. But we we did it in a a gentle way, and, uh, well, the result speaks for itself. And then after three years of that, um, the institution had sort of woken up to the fact that we did some really good job rescuing people, but we never fed back to the people we rescued, you know, what we'd seen, what they'd got wrong sort of thing, and how different training, different approaches could help them to help us to rescue them. So that's when prevention was born and I I literally, in at the beginning of, uh, I think it was 93, I sat in an empty office with a blank sheet of paper, having been told to do something about prevention. It was a bit of a fight getting the funds for it because obviously the focus was very much on developing the Lifeboat service. And, of course, we were moving into lifeguards, the college, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was was a fight to get what I always felt was an appropriate amount of the budget focused on prevention. But I'm delighted to see over the years that's really developed. And you look at the stuff coming through now of people who, you know, float to live and, and, and all that sort of thing. There's story after story coming through of people that have heard it, read it done it um, and are alive today and and, um, I mean but but it was tense because you know one or two of the older and bolder put their arm around me on occasions to say you know don't overdo your enthusiasm on this Michael or you'll put us all out of a job which of course was never going to happen but I could understand you know their passion being slightly interrupted by this youngster who was pushing a different message. Uh, from the traditional one. What went through my mind from a date in June in 1997, when I was appointed Chief of Operations, which became morphed into being the Ops Director, to the 10th of July 2013, which was my 65th birthday and the day I retired, the The biggest driver for me was to make sure none of our people lost their lives. You know, um I was around at the time of Penn Lee, and I saw what that did to a community decimated a community and i um there were there were various other capsizes but not not double capsizes but before long before going back to the the eighteen whatevers the Mexico uh, disaster which led to the establishment of street collections in Manchester. There were three lifeboats out, uh, on that occasion in, in and around um, uh, Liverpool Bay. Um, so you know it wasn't the first time, but one, the first for me was the fact that it was a modern lifeboat, the Thames class, which we only ever had two of, um, which was like a, a a big version of the forty-four footer, the Waveney class, that you know capsized and came up all the crew were fine. And the barrow boat, which was a traditional double-ender, which was not designed to be a self-writer, but that had been fitted with the airbag conversion. So when she went over, this enormous sausage blew up on the after-cabin top and provided the writing moment to bring her up. And all that crew uh, survived as well. The barra crew survived uh, as well, which was, which was fantastic. And and I think it was 14 people in all, um, which, um, you know, was, was progress. The trigger, I think, for the Thames uh, was very much the Marchioness disaster. And there were various investigations um, and quite, you know, the passage of time, Uh, And then eventually there was some discussion. I was involved with with Chief Coast Guard and the um, director of the Port of London Authority um, about you know search and rescue coverage on the Thames because up till that time it was it was provided by a a mixed group. There was the London Fire Brigade, there was police, but they were all organisations that had other tasks. You know, chasing baddies, putting out fires. There was no dedicated rescue service per se on the Thames, and I certainly saw that as an opportunity, or the RNLI saw that as a as, a, as an opportunity, um, and you know various discussions took place, and and John Prescott, who was deputy prime minister at the time, was was uh, was very much in favour of something, but I think the the slight battle we had was was different organisations wanted to be. <laughs> the ones doing the rescues outside the House of Commons, which obviously lies alongside the Thames. And I had to sort of fight the battle on the basis that if the RNLI was going to get involved, it was really all or nothing. We had to go from the tidal reaches, you know, Gravesend uh, or Sheerness, which was our easternmost lifeboat, and Sheerness and um, South End, uh, all the way up to Teddington, you know, the Tide End town, um, where the, the Thames became a river, the other side of the lock. Um, and we'd sort of worked out that we'd need four stations to do it and roughly where they should be. Um, eventually, uh, you know, it was accepted that we were best placed to do it. And we actually set it all up in about 18 months. I mean, it was amazing to get four lifeboat stations up and from scratch in, in quite difficult circumstances, you know, the first tower started off inside a pontoon on, on the Tower Pier, uh, rather than where it is now. I found out that the old police station, which is what Tower uh, Lifeboat Station is, was, was up for grabs and went and saw the Assistant Chief Commissioner of the Met Police, um, who was, had a bit of a conundrum because he wanted to get rid of it. But you know, all the boat operators were lining up with their checkbooks, and uh, I, I basically, slightly jokingly said to him, "Well, you know, the RNLi would be very interested, and uh, I'll give you a quid for it." Um, so he said, "Done," shook my hand, and that pound is in a little frame box at the station to this day. I actually paid for that out of my money, not the RNLi's money, which was great fun. Uh, and of course, it's developed, and now the station's being. Uh, rebuilt. The lifeguards, that was a challenge because the, certainly where I was coming from and, and the work we did to, to uh, convince the trustees it was a, a good thing to do, uh, was the fact that, you know, we'd always said we provide this wonderful service. but. It takes six minutes to launch an inshore lifeboat at best and it takes three minutes to drown so we were always three minutes the wrong side of providing that total service from the top of the beach to the open ocean and I always felt there was a gap there and with my sea safety hat on my prevention hat on I felt if we can do this the way we do the boating side of things it would be you know good for the nation um, and, um, uh, you know, good for the r and um, And, of course, what I hadn't realised was there were so many bonuses that came with that because we suddenly got into a younger tranche of people. Lifeguards were much better at having more of a mix in terms of, of, of male and female lifeguards. So that upped the ante. So I think there were two or three... Um, lifeboat females. Um, when I joined in the mid '70s, and it was about I think we had about 600 by the time I left, but I, I thought it was, you know, why were we ignoring half the population? Um, and, and history's proved itself. On my last day, um, it's was sort of a bit of a haze, really, because obviously there's a lot of emotion flowing around. Um, but uh, I was um, hustled into a Shannon taken to Weymouth. Uh, of course, when I knew we were going to Weymouth, I smelled a bit of a rat, because Weymouth was where I lived as a kid before I went to sea. I was friendly with the lifeboat crew when I was a sort of young teenager and used to polish the brass on the lifeboat and do various odd jobs. And then as I became trained in the Merchant Navy, I I helped a bit when they they were one of the first lifeboats to get radar. And I remember helping the old coxswain uh, with that. So I always had a soft spot for, for Weymouth. So I went there and somebody took a picture of me. They gave me some brasso. (laughs) <laughs> made me pol- made me polish a bit of brass for for a press photograph, which was was fun. Um, and then I got back, and there was a sort of presentation, and 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 uh, and all the rest of it. And then I was taken out to sea, and a helicopter came and whisked me off the back end of a Shannon. Um, and I've not been on a life- lifeboat since. Sadly, <laughs> the most important thing to me was that throughout that time when I was in the hot seat we didn't lose a life um, from amongst our people there's some very near misses um, and uh, uh, I was lucky Uh, but um, the day I retired I could feel my shoulders go back up it is a responsibility that you carry or should carry very seriously Um, uh, you know uh, and and I did but that, that was the fact that we developed from a, um, a good lifeboat service, European lifeboat service, into an international life-saving service. If you want to hear more stories from the RNLI's 200 Voices collection, then head to rnli.org forward slash 200 Voices or subscribe to the RNLI wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.